0: Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Hopefully, this is something you're very familiar with by now. If not, commit it to memory. Um, Let that be your task for the week, among other things that you have to do. Commit these few verses to memory. They are uh, good. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? God, you are good, and as we reflect on your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would move in us, that you would encourage us, that you would embolden us, and that you would cause us to love your word, to love your Christ, Jesus, who is the Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, This is my final go at REACH. Um, And so, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about reaching your community. Last week, we talked about your culture. We gave an overview of what culture is, what it means to be salt. Uh, But this week, we're going to talk about what it means to be light. Uh, Here, Jesus says, you are the light of the earth, or you are the light of the world, Um, And, and last week we, we, we talked a little bit about the differences between salt and light. We, we talked about how salt is uh, valuable simply because of what it is. It doesn't have to do anything, just the properties that, that it contains allows it to preserve. Uh, Food allows it to draw out the flavors of food. And in the same way, we are salt in our culture. Um, Just by our presence and just by us uh, living according to the Spirit, living by the Spirit, um, we uh, draw out the natural goodness in culture. Uh, We talked about the fact that culture is a good thing. Uh, if you recall, and that God created it, God gave us the command to be cultural people to do cultural activities, and now as believers, we are called to be a part of cultural renewal. Uh, this this week we're talking about being light, uh, and light is different than salt in a lot of ways. Clearly, uh, you know this, um, but light. Light is, is valuable just because of what it is, but it doesn't just stay on something. Light emanates. It, it flows out from a source. It moves. It goes into the darkness, and it sheds light on it. It bears light on it. Salt stays still, and just by being where it is and what it is, it is valuable. Light goes out, um, and it pierces the darkness. Um, it... it it exposes what was hidden by the dark, and, and, and what Jesus says here is that you are the light of the world, um, and, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about light on a lot of different levels, what it means to be light, uh, and we're, we're going to look at uh, a biblical, theological uh, view of light, we're going to look at a Christological view of light, light and then we're going to look at uh, light in the Christian life. Um, and we'll explain what each of those means, and then we'll give some practical ways that you and we can be light. Uh, and so, the first thing that we're going to do is look at light and biblical theology. Um, and in order to do that, I need to explain what I mean by biblical theology. Uh, there, there are two ways, really, you can look at biblical theology. The first is this. Any theology that finds its source from the Bible is biblical. Biblical. And it's thus biblical theology. Um, And then there's another way of looking at it, and that's the way that I mean here. And that is this, that we are looking at the Bible and we recognize that though the Bible is two testaments and 66 books, it is one cohesive unit. It's one story from beginning to end. And there are certain elements, there are certain themes, there are certain types or strings that that weave their way all the way through the story from beginning to end and so i'll I'll give you um one example uh, of a theme that that we see in the beginning and that that we see uh in the end and and that's of temple Um, in genesis 2 god creates the garden of eden and what we see is the garden of eden is the place where God comes and he walks with his people. He walks among his people. The place where God dwells with his people. Now right away when we read Genesis 2, we don't think temple. But as we read through the Bible, we begin to see other things that cause us to remember the garden. For example, the tabernacle. God wants to meet with his people and to live and to walk with his people. And so he tells them to build a tent in the wilderness. He comes and he, he lives in the tent. The imagery of the tent the, uh, harkens back to the Garden of Eden. Those who work the tent uh, do the same work that Adam and Eve do. God tells Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden. He tells the priests to work and keep the tent. Uh, and then that's the place where God dwells with his people. And then you move on and and the Israelites have a permanent home Uh, and in in, uh, Samuel and and then in Kings, 2 Samuel and in 1 Kings. uh, We begin to see that God has called his people to build a temple. He calls David to prepare the way for it and he calls Solomon to actually build the temple. And you look at the temple and there there are three or four chapters of description of what the temple looks like and you find that the temple uh, has lots of Vegetation um, carved in to the gold plates on the wall. Uh, There are beams of cedar that look like trees all throughout the temple. There's fine and precious stones. There There are fruit and vegetation, like I said, carved into the cedar, uh, imprinted on the wall. And all of a sudden, you, you realize that as you walk into the temple, you'd be looking at something that... It feels much like a garden. Not only that, the temple is meant to have and be surrounded by water. And if you recall in Genesis 2, maybe you do, maybe you don't. If not, go back, read it. Um, it, It's there. Um, God describes the garden and the placement of the garden is between four rivers. Uh, Two of them you're probably familiar with, the Tigris and Euphrates. The other two are ancient, either have different names or we just don't know where they are. Um, But these four rivers surround surround the garden, just like the water surrounds the temple. And all of a sudden we're saying, hold on, there's a picture here of something. There's something going on here. Uh, in Genesis 2, what we saw, a temple, we see in Exodus 33. And in Exodus 33, what we see is a temple, the tabernacle we see again here in, in Kings. And then, finally, we reach the climax of the story. Uh, and and that, that's Jesus. And what do we see? That in, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the temple. He tears down the temple, he promises, and he'll rebuild it. He was talking about the temple of his body. He enters into a perfect temple in Hebrews. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And then finally, after the climax, kind of the, it's not falling action, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's eternal fulfillment and consummation. Uh, we see finally the, the kingdom of God, the, the throne, the, the palace of God is a temple. It's where God sits among his people. Uh, We see in Revelation that Jesus walks among his churches. Literally what that word is, is he tabernacles among his people. It's a temple. What do we see surrounding this city? A sea as of glass, it's surrounded by water. We see gold and precious jewels, cedars. Uh, We see all of the same imagery again, except for this time it's a perfect temple. And our union with God is perfect. And so here we have this string, and it's a huge one. Temple is a big theme. If you don't understand temple, you're, you're, you're missing a little bit of what God has come to do and what God created us to do, and that is to be with his people. And so that's a string that runs through. And we're going to talk, and and, and that's, I I think, one of the better examples of biblical theology. You can also look at the theme of the hero. Um, The hero in Genesis 3, after the curse, is the promised seed. There's this seed that is coming. And this is the story. It's a good story. God created. We sinned. God cursed. But in the curse, he promises a seed. And what will that seed do? You remember. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy the curse. And then right after that, we get two story, We get a story about two sons. One son seems like he could be that promised seed. His name was Abel. He was a good guy. He loved the Lord. He made good sacrifices to the Lord. Maybe this is the seed. Maybe it's just right after. But what happens, Cain kills him. Can't be Abel. Abel is dead. Can't be Cain. He's a murderer. So what do we get? Genesis 4. Genealogy. We start tracing the seed. And every time we get a block of genealogy that ends, we get another hero. We get genealogy, genealogy, genealogy. Noah. Noah could be the one, right? It could be Noah. He's a good guy. He trusts God when everybody's mocking him. He builds an ark. He's the one who's going to preserve humanity through judgment of the flood. Noah does some things after he gets off the ark that aren't very admirable. Turns out he's a sinner too. So what do we get? More genealogy. Genealogy, genealogy, genealogy. Abraham. A new hero. This guy seems like he could be the one. He trusts God. He's a hundred years old. He's dealt with the curse as it's manifested itself in the barrenness of his wife, Sarah. He has a son, Isaac could be the one. But we find that when he's in Egypt, uh, he doesn't have much faith in God. He lies about his wife, says that Sarah's his sister, can't be the one. Can't. The one wouldn't lie. So he dies, and what do we get? Isaac, his son. Jacob, his son. Joseph, his son. None of these guys are it. Genealogy, Moses. And straight on through the Bible, we see these, this, this string of the conquering seed. Moses, who might be the best example, looks a lot like Jesus. He was supposed to die. The king was going to kill him. He escapes into Egypt, in a sense. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus escapes into Egypt. Moses then becomes the one who delivers God's people out of bondage. Jesus delivers God's people out of bondage. Moses is the prophet of the Lord. He's also the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which makes him a king. All of a sudden, he's also one of the first people to intercede on behalf of the people with God. He's a priest. Moses is prophet, priest, king, and deliverer. That should sound familiar. But Moses gets angry, strikes a rock. He doesn't listen to God. He sins in his anger. He can't be the one. Moses gets the best, best, the best death of all people. God rocks Moses to sleep, literally, on the top of a mountain, buries him, and gives his eulogy. There is none better. He sees the promised land. So what do we get? Genealogy, Joshua. No, genealogy, Saul. Certainly not. Genealogy, David. Maybe. No, he likes women a little too much. Genealogy. Finally, we get to Matthew. Genealogy, right? Matthew starts with genealogy. Then who do we get? Jesus. And then what don't we see anymore? Genealogy. Because we have a conquered seed. We have the fulfillment of a string that has run us all the way through Scripture. And if you don't realize that, you're going to look at all those people that I mentioned as heroes that you ought to imitate instead of men just like us who God called to point us to Jesus who would be the perfect, perfect form of what they were setting up without sin. Dead, but dead no longer. Alive forever. Forever. Jesus, this is biblical theology, one story, one story tied together, moving to one thing, and that is Jesus, and we've seen a taste of Jesus, and we look forward to the final consummation when Jesus rules on his holy hill, Zion, you've heard Zion before, right? Jerusalem was the type of that, the string pointing to that. Eden was before Jerusalem, see how it's all moving together. And Jesus will rule. It's a great story. And that's great for people who don't like systematic theology or sciences but love literature because it's a story and it's a good one. It's the best one. In fact, all other stories seem to try and copy it. And so we're going to look at light in biblical theology because this is important. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, there's a lot at play here. This is huge. This is not the first person. You are not the first person or group of people that he's called the light of the world. In fact, he called himself the light of the world, and we'll look at that next. Um, But in the beginning, we're going to start there. This might be a long one. No, not really. Um, (laughs) In the beginning, Genesis 1, you know how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Youth group, what is, what's the word for that? Come on. A little louder. Yell it, yell it. That's right. Tovu vavohu. Very good. Tovu vavohu. It's my favorite word in all of language. Um, it just rolls off the tongue really awkwardly, and I, I love awkward things. Tovu vavohu. It means wild and waste. It's like the ocean during a hurricane. You don't want to go out there, it's Tovu Vavohu. And the world, the earth, is Tovu Vavohu, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then we see this God says, Let there be light. And there was light, and it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And so, right from the beginning, what we see is that the world is chaotic. God is going to be ordering the world. And the first step God uses in his ordering of the world in the beginning is to create light and to send light out and to separate light from the darkness. And the light he calls day and the dark he calls night. And so light is that first step. It illuminates everything so that God can see even though he knows so that the chaos is made visible and he can begin separating and ordering and filling things. God said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. Not only that, there's something about the light that marks each step of God's ordering and creation. Because day one ends and it doesn't end the way that we say. If we said it was a day, we'd say it was the morning and then it was night and that was our day. But what what does Genesis 1 say? It was evening, and then it was morning, the first day. And so we move from darkness into light. We progress from unseen into seen, and then we get more ordering. Light's very important in creation. Uh, But then light becomes a very huge theme again in the book of Exodus. We see light a lot in Exodus. And the first time we see it in the book of Exodus is uh, during the plagues, and if you recall, one of the plagues was darkness. The Bible says this about darkness that the whole of the land was covered in darkness and could not see, except for the people of God, who had light. Now, how is this related to the first light that we saw? God is ordering and establishing his kingdom and his world through his people, the Israelites. And he is establishing that they are his. Those who are not his people walk in darkness. Literally, they walked in darkness. Today, we can already see where this is going. Spiritually, they walk in darkness. But those who were God's people literally walked in light. Just as we, who are in Jesus, walk in light. We'll get there, though. So then we see light again. In Exodus 33, we mentioned it earlier. God tells Moses and commands the people to build for himself a tent of meeting in their midst. And so they build this tent. And there, there's this amazing ceremony. I, I, honestly, I, I say this, but it's because sometimes I forget my own sinfulness. I just do not understand how the Israelites missed it so many times. After seeing so many different things, and then I remind myself of how many times God has done things that I thought were impossible, and I forget the next day. But, but seriously, they build this tent, and then there's like this smoke, okay? The smoke comes down over the tent in the day, and then at night, what is there? Fire. There's fire over the tent, and what this fire represents is the spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. Another word for the glory of the Lord is the radiance of the Lord. The light that the Lord emits is his glory. And it comes in among the people and into his tent. And there the light is symbolizing the fact that God is dwelling with his people. Not only has he called them out, he has, he's chosen to live with them. And they forget. Or they don't care. I don't know which it is. Or they're just really self-centered. They're sinful, just like us. They forget time and time again. Um, And if you don't know anything about the history of the Israelite people in the Old Testament, just know this. God rescues them a lot. They think, oh, thank you, God, for rescuing us. We're going to follow you forever. And then like two days later, um, they start worshiping some other God um, from some other nation. And they repeat this vicious cycle until finally uh, God says uh, to his prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah Isaiah, uh, 10, enough. Enough. And we get this, or in Ezekiel, I apologize, in Ezekiel 10. And we get this picture in Ezekiel 10 of the Spirit of the Lord the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. So we see is the radiance of God, the Spirit of the Lord, leaves the temple, goes up the mountain, never to be, well, not never to be seen again, but goes up the mountain, not to be seen in the temple or in Jerusalem for quite some time. And so what, what's happening here is, metaphorically, the people are in darkness again because the Spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord has left the people. Now here's what this means, and, um, because this, this, this really is important. This happens. The Spirit of the Lord leaves the temple. The light of the Lord leaves the midst of, the midst of his people, goes up the mountain, ascends into heaven, and then we get 400 years of silence. No prophecies, no prophets, no word from the Lord, nothing. We see that somehow, tied up in this light of the Lord, is the revelation of God and who he is. Light reveals, we know that. It reveals our sinfulness, it also reveals the the glory and the truth of God. And this light, this spirit, this glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And for 400 years, we're left in silence. Darkness till what? Till some poor raggedy shepherds in some back hills town in Judea are laying on the grass and they see lights from the sky. It's angels. <laughs> and I, I can't even imagine, it must have looked like day. The light of the Lord shines on them and the messengers of God give them a proclamation. They say, your Savior is born. Jesus is here. They go and there's Jesus and God has become incarnate, has taken on flesh, has become man in this baby in a manger, and, and Matthew tells us that story about the incarnation, and John tells us this story, and we're going to come back to it, so I'll just say it briefly, um, that in the beginning was the Word, and in the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. And so here comes the light, Jesus, and his light, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it we'll talk about that word comprehend too so here we get jesus the light of the world and he comes, and he's here, and he lives, and, and he heals, and he, and he lives and walks among his people. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same as the word dwelt, walk among us. When, when Jesus is mentioned in, in Revelation as walking among the lampstands, literally God says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He, he made his home with us. Light came to live with the darkness. But here's the thing is that when light's in darkness, the darkness can't overcome it. So we have Jesus, the light of the world here. Okay? And so all we've, we've gone from the first step in creation being light to the first step in recreation being the light of the world. That's cool. But it goes on. Right? Because what happens? Jesus does all these things. People don't love him as much as we'd expect. In fact, the Pharisees pretty much just hate him and they want him killed. And so they get him killed. And on the cross, as he dies, light leaves. The earth quakes. There's darkness over the land again. Light is huge. Light represents God being ordering out of disorder, God being with his people, God revealing himself to his people, God loving and protecting his people, and the light's gone for a little bit. And then at dawn, it's just cool. There was evening, Friday evening, and Sunday morning, Jesus raises from the dead. Until finally, we move into Revelation. Uh, it's also in Isaiah, the same imagery. But in Revelation, what do we see? There's no need for sun, moon, stars, because God is the light. Because the Lord is our light. So there, there's only light. In the beginning, there's light and darkness, and there's this, and all throughout, we see light and darkness being contrasted, and then finally, in the end, God casts out all the darkness. No more darkness, only light. It's a great thing. So light is an important vehicle throughout all Scripture. It it starts in creation with Jesus, who's the author of creation, finds its climax, in Jesus, who's the light of the world, and eventually there will only be light. Jesus wins. Light wins. And Jesus says, "You are the light of the world." But there's there's more to light because that that's kind of hard to relate to ourselves, and it should be because it's about Jesus. There's also uh, light and, and Jesus, light and Christ. The Christological approach to light uh, uh, through through the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at John to do that. Um, I know that we're not spending a lot of time in just one text. Typically, I like a chunk of text, and I like to be uh, bound to the text a little bit. Um, but we're, we're instead just kind of going over the whole of, of, of it. So um, just keep, bear with me, I suppose, because uh, it is a little out of what I'm used to. But we're, we're in John now, and we talked about this just a moment ago. Um, if you turn to John 1, which you, you should... Um, this is another one, um, John 1, 1 through 18, if you have time, it's 18 verses, take, you know, several months if you need. You ought to memorize this, because this is an amazing story. Um, this is an amazing explanation of, of what happened in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, in those baby Jesus stories, well, Matthew and, and Luke. Um, anyway, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And we know this because anything that was made in Genesis 1 was spoken. The word of God actually created it. That's why God spoke. God didn't have to speak. You know, he could have just thought. But the Bible says God spoke and it happened. God said, let there be light. God said, let us separate this and that. God said, let us fill this with that. And now we come here and we realize that that very word of God, that agent of creation, is Jesus. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Um, And when you think about that word, I don't want you to think about understanding, although that's true. Um, That's not really the Greek understanding of the word. It's more like, and if you're a teacher, you kind of get this, the test is comprehensive. I mean, of course, it's a test, so it's about what you comprehend, but when you say comprehensive, what you mean is that it's covering everything. Um, Other versions, I don't know which one you have. Others may say the, the darkness cannot overcome it. That... That's kind of what it's getting at. The darkness um, could not stand against it. The darkness could not be comprehensive in its control over the light. In fact, it had no control over the light. The light comes into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And it's true light coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. We know this because of our survey of biblical theology and light. The sun and the moon weren't the true light. They weren't even the first light created. God creates light, and then three days later, he creates the sun and the moon. And then in the end, the sun and the moon seem to have been blotted out in judgment. But there's light, because God, Jesus, is the true light. And so Jesus is the light, uh, the true light which enlightens everyone Was coming in the world. He was, ma- he was in the world, he made the world, and yet the world didn't know him came among his people they didn't receive him. So what we see is that light is the author of creation. And since it's Jesus, it's also the author of recreation. Being light for Jesus is about salvation. It's about creation. It's about calling his people. It's about being in the midst of his people and bringing them out of darkness. Uh, But then Jesus will say three more times in the book of John that he's light. And if you think John doesn't love light, then read 1 John 1, 2, 1 as well because the beginning of that is all about light. But we're going to stay in just the gospel of John in Jesus' life. If you, if you move eight chapters forward in Jesus' life, seven really, um, you get this story of a woman. And this woman is caught in adultery. Literally what the Bible says is that these Pharisees went and while the woman was in the act of adultery, in the middle of it, they snatched her up, pulled her into the street and brought her in front of Jesus. And they said to Jesus, what should we do with this woman? And clearly, the woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of the Lord is that she should be stoned her sin is great what does Jesus do he kneels down in the sand takes his finger and he starts to write in the sand one of the great mysteries in my mind like these are the things that I obsess over what did he write what did he write? Isn't that a good question? I mean, he writes something. He writes it large enough, I think, so that the Pharisees see it. The Pharisees see it, and all he has to do is stand up and say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walk away. And I, I, I like to think that since Jesus knows what's in a man and he knows their hearts, that he just starts writing sin's. And as they read it, (laughs) they're seeing who they are and their own sinfulness. And they're seeing that their list is a lot longer, a lot worse than just adultery. Not that it's just adultery, but you know what I'm saying. And then he stands up and says, Look, the one without sin, cast that first stone. If you have the audacity to be that person. And they all walk away. And Jesus stands up and says to the woman, no one here is left that condemns you. Go. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are no more. Huge. And they say to him, you know, how can you, who, who's this one? <laughs> who's this one who's forgiving sins? Jesus forgives our sins. And what's the next thing that he says? I'm the light of the world. The light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So somehow, Jesus being the light of the world is wrapped up in the forgiveness of, sin, of sins. It's wrapped up in people who were condemned, receiving compassion and mercy and following Jesus. Jesus. It means that the light of the world is not coming here to condemn. The light shines light on sin, and sin, you've, Jesus didn't come to condemn because they were condemned already. That's also what John says in chapter 3. Jesus came to shed light, and that light calls people to follow it. Your words, a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. We follow the words. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will find life. Light leads people to life, not condemnation. So then we move on. Just one, just one chapter in Jesus' life. Um, and there's a man who was born blind. Chapter nine, we're in. He walks next to this man with his disciples. And his disciples said to him, Teacher, who sinned to make this man be born blind? Was it him or was his parent was it his parents? There's a lot in this question. There's a lot about the nature of sin in their question. Because if it's his parents' sin that caused his blindness, and we see that sin and the effects of it are hereditary in some way and that God sees fit to judge other people for someone else's or to judge people for someone else's sin. There's a lot to deal with in that. But on the other hand, if it's the man's sin who caused this blindness and he was born blind, What does that say about the nature of our sinfulness? I mean, he couldn't have done anything in the womb to marry. It couldn't have been an action. So there's a lot about sin in this question. There's a lot about the nature of it and the nature of God and what God is like. And look at Jesus' response, Jesus' response. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, Let's just see that for a second. Because it seems like every time something bad happens around the world, some guy who claims to be on our side gets on TV and says it's because a certain group of people do a certain thing. Every time. And it forgets the nature of sin and its truth. And that is that Adam and Eve were created as the center of humanity, was the centerpiece of God's creation. And so when they sinned, it was like a giant boulder was thrown in the middle of a small lake. And everything was thrown off. Sin, with a capital S, the enemy, sin. It's bigger than just what you do. Although you can commit sin, sin is bigger than that. And its effects are bigger than that. Do you think that a child in in Uganda that's born with AIDS is <laughs> that that somehow there's something that in him that merits punishment? But but we who were born in the United States somehow we we we're better seen in the in the eyes of God. Like, do you think that we're blessed? because of who we are because of the nature of who we are and they're not I mean did you even <laughs> they didn't choose to be born where they were born and so no one no one does it's it's just the the choice of god why you were born where you are and whether you're born in the United States and you were driven home in a Lexus SUV or whether you were born in Uganda and you just left there to be picked up by somebody else God has put you where you are he's ordained these things he's allowed these things to happen for the sake of his glory why was this man born blind so that God could receive glory And then Jesus does the grossest thing that he ever, that, that he does, all, all scripture. He, he spits in the ground. He makes mud. And he takes his spit mud and he rubs it on this guy's eyes. He says, all right, go down, wash the spit mud off of your eyes and you'll be able to see He doesn't say spit mud, I don't think. Um, (laughs) He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. (laughs) That's interesting, too. (laughs) This guy being seen, seeing and being a follower of Jesus is wrapped up in his being sent. I don't have a sermon to preach on that yet. Um, So he went back and washed, and he came back seeing. There's this whole... Story, and Jesus <laughs> says that he comes into the world as light after all of this explanation about how how could this man see you know, read it it 's good for our for our intents and purposes it 's not really the the point the is, was it the guy? No, it couldn't have been the guy. This guy can see. That guy was blind from birth. No, I'm pretty sure it's the guy. They have the same haircut. You know, and then, no, it's me. It's, you know, I'm not dead yet. Um, and then finally, it's him. And they, they, they determine that the parents are like, no, I, I, I know, you know, moms know who they gave birth to. And finally, after all of that, Jesus says, you know, I, I'm light in the world. And and I come and I give sight to the blind. People who are in me can see, and so there's something about the light being in the world that that gives sight to the blind. That sends out people that is contagious. And finally, chapter eleven. We see Lazarus, Jesus' friend, is sick, and you know the story, he dies. Jesus comes a couple days later, we don't know how long, deals with Mary and Martha, gets very angry, and in his anger, he cries and yells at the grave. Lazarus come out, Lazarus comes forth. A dead guy is now alive. Um, it's in the papers. It makes its way through, you know, the Twitter verse blows up and and everybody is talking about this guy who is dead and who's now alive. Um, and we get into verse 12, and they're still talking about it. Um, and finally, all, all of this conversation is going on. Greeks are starting to seek Jesus because, look, if somebody can raise the dead, um, you need to go find out who they are and, and follow them. <laughs> and I don't mean that in sort of the medical sense where, you shock them back to life, but if with words you can raise somebody from the dead, um, that that's that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> and so finally, we 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 see in verse thirty-five of twelve after verse of chapter twelve after you know the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus now. Uh, every the Greeks are trying to to. to to uh, follow Jesus. They're, they want to see who this guy is. Um, he, he makes his entrance into Jerusalem. We see that the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the light, the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And so what we see is one of the results of him raising Lazarus from the dead is that he's going to have to die. It's the final straw. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees say, that's enough. People are going to start following him. We're going to lose our power. He's got to go. And so in John, that starts the road to Jesus' death. And so Jesus says, look, part of being light for me is that I have to give my life up for you. Walk in the light now while you have me because I'll be taken away. And if you walk with me, you will become sons of light. And so part of Jesus being the light of the world is that he has the ability to make other people be light too. Drink from this cup. Now you're like me. Jesus can do that. You know, follow the light and you become a child of light. It's big. Jesus is the light, so he comes and he lives among his people. He blesses and heals them. He brings them compassion. He dies for them. And All of a sudden, we're seeing things that are very practical for us. We're called to be among the people. We're called to send the people. We're called to show compassion to people. We're called to heal and bless people. We're called to care for people. We're called to give our lives up for people, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. This is not just doing your good deeds in the town square so that, you know, here's ten cents, homeless man. Look at me. You know, uh, this is not, that's not light of the world. That's, there's more to it than that. It's, it's truer. It's bigger than that. Um. Light is a big part of sanctification and that's kind of the last part of the overview. Um, And then I'll just give you five, five things. But light in the Christian life is the last thing that we need to talk about. You are moving from darkness into light. That is the story of the Christian life. You are moving from ignorance into knowledge. You are moving from falsity into truth. You are moving from chaos of sin to godly order. This is your life. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're called to be light. You're called to be in the world. Uh, you are, you're called to be not of the world. You are called to be little light. You're, you're Christians. You're little Christ. You're little lights that point to the big light. Everywhere you are in, in, this, in, this, in this giant creation that is still filled with darkness, you're just a little light, a little candle, that's telling people, that's pointing to the fact that there's a son there somewhere. That if you seek that son, you'll be, you'll be you'll be saved. You'll find life and forgiveness. You're the light of the world. And that means that <laughs> you can't just stay at home. Last week we talked about the things you do at home that matter in a big way. The things you do just in your everyday life that you don't go out of your way to do so that you'll be salt of the earth, drawing out what is good in your profession, drawing out what's good in your neighborhood, drawing out what's good in your culture. Um, But this week, light has another task. Light must go out, must go out into the world. You're called to be light in your community. You're called to be light in your world. And so what I want to do really quickly is give you five ways that we can be light. Right? And so when I say this, what I, I mean two things. Five ways that we, the church, as an institution, Grace Community Church, can be light. Um, and those same five things are ways that you as individuals or as families can be light in your community. Um, go to a lot of conferences, once one or two a year, which is a lot. It, that's a lot. It gets kind of tedious sometimes. Um, but a lot of times you'll hear this question. Um, if your church were to disappear, if, if tomorrow your church were to close its doors, would your community feel the difference? Would they even know? Would they be sad? Would there definitely be a void in your community? Um, and I think that the same question can be asked of you and your families and your neighborhoods. If something happened and this this very night you had to pack up your bags, you had to move away, would anyone in your neighborhood know? And if they did, would they be sad or would they be happy? (laughs) Be that kind of neighbor? Oh, phew. Thank goodness. They're gone. Would there be sad? Would there be a void in your neighborhood? Would there be a void in your workplace? You were fired? Got a new job? Died? Are you being light? Here are five things. (laughs) Uh, The first thing is, and I'm pretty sure I've got a yeah, five ways to be light. (laughs) I don't have these five in front of me, but the first is to meet your neighbors. It's not. Ah, that's funny. All right, to pray for your neighbors. Um, Jesus prayed for us. In John 20, he prays for us. prays that we be sanctified in the truth. And then he says that his word is truth. Uh, He prays for those who are perishing. He prays for those who are dying. He weeps and prays for Jerusalem on his uh, entry into it in Luke. Um, Pray for your community. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for those around you. The second thing is bless. Bless your neighbors. Be a blessing to your neighbors. As a church, uh, we can do that by being involved in mentoring programs. Or uh, we can do that through our benevolence fund. Uh, we can do that through taking the skills that we have and going into communities where there's need for, where, where their house is in disrepair and fixing them. Um, being a part of what's going on in our community. Um, be a blessing. Um, if somebody in your neighborhood is in need Be a part of meeting that need. Be a joy to them. Bless your neighbors. Pray for your neighbors. Bless your neighbors. Uh, Eat with your neighbors. This is a big one. I almost thought about doing, well, I didn't almost think, I thought about doing um, the whole thing on eating and doing a biblical theology of food and how in the garden God creates food to bless his people. Food is a gift from God. And then after the fall, um, food, feasts are always associated with uh, the, the pouring out of God's goodness and grace on his people. Uh, and that Jesus spends a lot of his ministry, most of it in people's houses, a lot of it eating. Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's a big one because he's reminding people that there's going to come a day where there's a a giant feast and there's no more hunger. And it ends with that. Hospitality is wrapped up in eating eating with people. (laughs) Uh, Food. Uh, Most everybody loves food, and just about everybody has to eat. And so it's a very easy way to get people together. And not only that, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you have dinner with people, it's, it's just typically, unless it's like, I don't know, Thanksgiving with all the extended family and it's kind of tense or whatever. And, um, it's usually a good thing. Like, when, when you some of my best memories with, with my friends are eating and, and hanging out, eating food, talking, talking. Um, the conversation is just natural. It's good. Uh, in, in, in Hebrew culture, in ancient culture, in most cultures around the world, it's a sign of fellowship and friendship. As believers, we're called to the table together. Um, we're called to, <laughs> I, it, we are looking forward to a feast. And everyone's invited to that feast. And so we can start imaging that now by inviting people to eat with us. Um, Bless somebody this week. Invite somebody who is not in your family or in your home group over to your house for dinner this week. Or go somewhere and eat if you, if you don't have a ho- home that's, you know, capable of hosting many more people than are already eating there. Um, <clears throat> listen to your neighbors, to your community. Jesus, listened. When you're eating with them and there's conversation, listen to what they're saying. As a church, we ought to listen to our community. We ought to hear what the people in our community are saying. Hear their complaints, hear their needs, hear their desires, and show them how Jesus is the solution for all of them. Listen to your neighbors. Find out who they are. Where they're from what they enjoy, what they're struggling with. You'd be surprised. People will talk if, you, if you're willing to listen. And then finally, share with your neighbors. I mean this on a lot of different levels. The first and most obvious level is share the gospel with your neighbors. But also share your life with your neighbors we live in a culture and in a community where everything is inward. I mean, Melissa and I talk about this all the time. Even the architecture is very inward. Um, you have a garage that's at the front of your house now. It's very, and you drive into your garage. You don't have to see anybody. You go into your home. You do your thing. You go to bed. You get up. You want to go to work. You get in your garage in your car. You go to work, and you can live your whole life and not meet your neighbor. It's a sad thing. Because your neighbors, just like you, are dying without Jesus. Love your neighbor. It's almost come to the point where when Jesus was talking, it was easier for them to say, yeah, I can love my fellow Jew, but, you know, I can't love my neighbor who's the foreigner. It's almost easier for us now to love our neighbor who's a kid in in a country that doesn't have food that we can send money with Compassion International to and not to love our neighbor who is literally our Webster's definition, neighbor. People can move in next door and you didn't even realize that they weren't the ones who lived there yesterday. (laughs) <laughs> or you can ask so how long have you guys been here oh 10 years we remember when you moved in it happens in church all the time well for me uh, this is this is on me cuz when we've had I had a conversation with somebody about but uh, there are people who've come to this church for a long time And you know like I am Sean and they're like I know we we've we've been here for 2 years like all right well I'm embarrassed Um, but but share your lives with your neighbors. Um, Let them know who you are. Don't paint this picture of perfection. Be honest with your neighbors. Look, I'm a Christian, and I yell at my kids sometimes, even when they don't deserve it, just because I'm mad. I'm not perfect. You know, we're not perfect people, but we follow Jesus. And part of that is <laughs> loving your neighbor and sharing with your neighbor. So, so this week, pray for your neighbors. In fact, we'll make it even simpler. Pick one neighbor. If you don't know who they are, pick the house. So over there, that house, I'm praying for them. All right? Pray for your neighbor. Find a way to bless them. Which means you're going to have to talk to them. That conversation may, in fact, be a blessing to them. Take some time. It doesn't have to be this week. Work up to inviting them over to eat with you. Listen to them. Talk with them. Share a meal with them. We'll combine those last three into one for the sake of this assignment. Go reach your community.